Welcome to the Epicenter Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Epicenter Church, visit epicenterchurch.com.au. Those of you that don't know me, if you're new, if you're visiting, I know Alice um, welcomed me, but my name is Robert and I'm one of the pastors here at Epicenter Church. And if you are a guest with us, if you've been forced by a friend to come here because they wouldn't give you lunch, then you're welcome and we're uh, very thankful to have you with us. Um, can I say, as I know that Alice, Alex did, a very warm welcome to uh, Damo, who is moving around the back at the moment. So some of you won't be aware of who Damo is, but Damo was our pastor here that led us from start to where we are today. And um, I feel very honoured and privileged to have you here with us this morning. So can I, can I please encourage everyone to connect with, love on him, um, find out what's been happening, what's been going on in his world and so forth. Um, we're really blessed to have you with us. So like Alice said, we are in week three of Love Built. This first week was Love Builds Bridges and the love wants to keep us moving forward and not stay stationary in hurt, in pain or whatever it is that we're going through. The second week, which was last week, was Love Builds Oneness and the love desires to pursue relationship. And so love looks like it reconciles wrongs. When there's differences, when there's hurts, when there's issues, we, we pursue reconciliation because we're about relationship. We're into week three this week, and it is love discovered. So it kind of doesn't work, does it? It's not the love built, but I couldn't make this one fit with love built something. It had to be love discovered. Uh, this one, as I was putting together this series, is my favorite one. I'm very excited about um, talking about this. And the more that I put it together, the more excited I got. So I'm hoping that you get something out of it. Could you agree with me that you will? Fantastic. How about I pray and then we'll continue. Sound good? It doesn't matter if it doesn't. I'm going to do it anyway. So, Father, I thank you for this um, privilege to gather together this morning as a body to to worship you, to love you, Father. And I pray that as I share, Father, what I feel it is that you've placed in my heart, God, to share this morning surrounding this topic, Father. I pray that um, two things take place, Jesus. One, that we're challenged, and two, we're encouraged, Father. We're challenged to enlarge what you've given us, Father, and we're encouraged to step out in that, Jesus, and discover. In Jesus' name, and everybody say, Said. Amen. So I have this internal struggle that I go through. And it looks like this, that I notice people. And I know that we all notice people because we've all got retinas with our eyes that we stare at people with. But I literally notice people. My wife tells me, you have an intense stare and you stare at everyone. When I was rodeoing, the cowboy that I used to travel with, he, he would say to me as cars were overtaking us, or I was overtaking cars, he said, I've never seen anyone stare at people like you do. Like we'd be sitting there and I'd just, I'd zone in and stare at people. And I've, I've this is like a moment of honesty that I notice people and I don't notice normal people. It's all right, Ben. Like I, if someone's got a, like hair that I deem strange, I stare at them. So if I'm in a restaurant and someone turns up in a mohawk, I can't stop looking. I can't stop looking. I, I have this struggle that I go through. If, if someone eats funny, if they look funny, if they laugh funny, like there's, there's something that, and this doesn't happen all the time, but there's, there's this thing that just happens in me that I have to, I have to stare at them and look at them. So I want to, and this doesn't, like it, it sounds really, really bad. It's not as bad as it sounds, but it is pretty bad still as well. It's going to get worse. Um, But so to walk you through a day in the life of Robert, it looks like this. So can we go for the first slide? No, no, wait. 
Yep, it's up. So I'm scrolling through Facebook, and this is how my life works, not just Facebook. I don't do much with Facebook other than stalk, apparently. But I'm scrolling through Facebook, and this picture comes up. So this is Finley. This is the eldest daughter of um, Alex and Micah. Alex was just leading us in worship before. And so this picture comes up, and I actually scrolled past it, and then I had to go back to it. So what's going on there? And then, like, then, so then the next stage after that was I had to tap on the picture and look at it again, and then I had to zoom in on it. I didn't zoom in on the coffee or that Micah was feeding Jethro, the, the little guy in the back. I had to zoom in on Finley's eyes. And when I zoomed in, I was like, what on earth is going on? There's something really wrong. And so then from there, my, my thought was that I need to post something. And I never comment on anything. But I just thought this was worthy of a comment. And so I just quickly commented, what the heck's going on with Finley's eyes? And then after I did that, I had this, um, about 30 seconds later, I had this slight heart attack that I thought, what happens if her eyes have always been that way and I've never noticed it? And I wanted to delete the I wanted to delete the comment, but I couldn't work out how to do it because I'm not technical, logical, savvy, that sort of thing. So I, I just had to leave and I thought for a minute, I'm like, no, I'm sure her eyes are not like that. And then when we went to like I go to link with Alex and Micah and I went there and I studied her eyes and they're not like that. But what what I did was that I, I only zoomed in on everything that was wrong. Like there's something like if you ask Finley to go cross-eyed, she will go cross-eyed and that's what it will look like. Um, but I only zoomed in on everything that was wrong, that was like a miss. It wasn't quite right with Finley's eyes. And if I'm to be a little bit more transparent than what I have been up to date, I don't just do that with how people look. I do that with how people act too. Like I, I'll, I'll look at actions that people have and I'm like there's something really wrong. And I'll end up at, to get to the point where I'll judge their character based on their actions. And I don't do this all the time, and it's not a habit that I try and make. In fact, when I realize that I'm doing it, it's a habit that I try to make that I pray and I repent and I say I shouldn't have done that and I ask for forgiveness and all the rest. But I've discovered in my life that I struggle with this, that I look at everything that's, that's wrong. I see the actions of someone, and then I determine that must be a reflection of their character, that they are this person based on that. Am I just a judgmental pastor? <laughs> yeah. I knew someone was going to say that. <laughs> but but, but would, it, would it be fair to say that we've all met people that do that? As, as far as we've all met that, that spouse or that couple that only ever pick on their problems, on, on one another's problems. They're, they're always nitpicking each other. You didn't do the dishes. You never do the dishes. You never do this. You never do this to me. You never help with the kids. You never help with the, with the laundry or the lawn or you like your clothes just spread everywhere across the, the room. Maybe you don't get into all those conversations with them, but you hear enough to, to know that there's, they're just always, always, always nitpicking. You like would be aware of that couple, wouldn't we? We'd all be aware of at least that one partner in the, in the relationship or Perhaps it's the parent that's always just picking, nitpicking on their kids, always at them, always just focusing on what's wrong. Or perhaps we've worked for someone that's a, that's a boss that does that, never focus on anything good you did, but will pull out everything bad that you've done. 
I think we've all experienced those people, or in a broader sense, we've probably met that person as far as in the church world, where all they do is focus on everything that's wrong with the church. They just pull out and highlight everything that's wrong. The sermon is this, the worship is that, it's no good. The songs that we sing aren't good enough. They aren't holy enough. They aren't the good words or whatever it is. They don't like the messages. Like We've met that person. And we've probably met another person in this group, and that's the person that just hates themselves. They highlight everything that's wrong, everything that's bad, everything that's troublesome with themselves. They don't like how they laugh, how they think, how they dress, how they look. They don't like their hairstyle. Would I be correct in saying we've all met these people, all met someone in that that group? And obviously you've met me, so you know that I sit in this group, so happy days. But if, if I... If I could ask us all to be real with ourselves this morning, with, with, with yourself, not with me, not with the person next to you, just to be real to yourself, that's you as well, isn't it? That, that's all of us. No, none of us are immune from this. Like, some of us might be less so than others, but we, we all struggle with this at times. Sometimes we go through seasons where we just only focus on everything that's wrong and never focus on anything that's good. Some of us, we just live in that place. For some of us, we're that boss. Some of us, we're that spouse or we're that parent. We're that friend. We're that person with the church. Some of us, we're that person regarding ourselves. We only focus on everything that's wrong. And I think we, we, we do it with, with, with good intentions. We're not meaning to be wicked or evil people. We do it with good intentions for the simple reason is when you focus on what, say, if you're that employer that focuses on everything that's wrong with your employee, you're not wanting to bash them. Sometimes you might, but you're not wanting to bash them. Ultimately, you're wanting to draw out something good in them. That's generally why we focus on the negative because we're wanting to highlight it to that person so that they realize everything that's wrong with them, then they're going to change and they're going to get better. Would that be a correct assumption? Because I know it's, that's what it is in my life. I focus on that because I want to see that person get better, that person grow, that individual, that corporation, whatever. I want to see them get better. So in those conversations, I'll highlight everything that's wrong, hoping that they'll get better. But I've discovered that it's not necessarily the best or most proactive way of going about loving people. Like as a church, our purpose is to build people. That's what one of the things that Alice is talking about. We want to empower people to lead. We want to empower people to go out into the community, to, to love on people, to see people transform, to, to make disciples. We, we want to see people grow. That's what we want to do as, as Christians, as Christ followers, see people grow. That's part of the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples. We want to see people build. And so we have this idea at times, that the best way to build people is to highlight, focus on negative. And sometimes we only do this in our own minds, but then we'll end up interacting with those people based on how we perceive them. And so when it comes to building people, I think the best example that we could find is in the lifestyle of Jesus. I think Jesus is the best example we could find of a leader that empowers, equips, and releases people and sends people out. And in inspires lasting change in individuals for this reason. Can we go to the next slide, please, Matt? Prior to meeting Jesus, the disciples' focus was on supporting themselves. In that you got 12 disciples, okay? So some of them were fishermen. What were they doing? They were fishing to feed their families, to feed their own belly, to make income, to just look after themselves. Matthew was a tax collector. We don't know what every single one of them was, but Matthew was a tax collector. What was his job? To steal. 
basically. So what the tax collectors would do is if they were taxing you, if the tax was 20 cents in the dollar, the tax collector would collect 30 cents in the dollar, give the 20 cents to the government and pocket the 10 cents plus his wage that he got from that. He was like a thief. No one liked him. And so prior to meeting Jesus, the disciples' focus was on supporting themselves. No one else themselves. But after encountering, so we got prior to Jesus, now after encountering Jesus, they dedicated their lives, and this is important, dedicated their lives to seeing people's lives transformed. That's, I think, very important because prior to meeting Jesus, you can drop that slide, they had this focus on only meeting their own needs. But then after meeting Jesus, they actually became martyrs all by one, all by John, to seeing people's lives empowered and transformed. So I think when it, when it comes to leadership, when it comes to developing people, when it comes to growing people, when it comes to engaging with people, when it comes to seeing the best brought out of G- people, Jesus is the best example. Because he had 12 guys, I know that's only two, but, but believe it's 12, 12 guys go from only focusing on themselves to dying to want to see people's lives transformed. I think that means that Jesus was absolutely incredible at transforming people. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go through a story from um, the book of Luke where, where it, Jesus talks about, I believe, just it. He to, he's talking about a whole lot of things in this, in this chapter, but he's talking about this. And so we're going to read from the book of Luke this morning. For those of you that don't know what the book of Luke is, Luke was a doctor that set out to discover everything there was about Jesus' life and ministry, and he scribed it all. So Luke 15 says this um, from verse 1. It says, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus. The important thing we need to keep in mind as we start reading are tax collectors and other notorious sinners. They're bad people, perhaps. But we, if we were to maybe retranslate that in more modern terms, tax collectors would look like a petty thief and notorious sinners would look like just anything that you do that's wrong. So it might be petty thieves and adulterers, petty thieves and people that have sex out of wedlock, petty thieves and people that drink too much, petty thieves and selfish people, petty thieves and people that lie, petty thieves and people that just do wrong in general. That's all of us, yeah? Like the Bible says, we've all sinned and all fallen short of the glory of God. None of us, regardless of whether they're Christians or not, move from that category. We all sin. We all mess up. None of us are immune to it. So tax collectors and notorious sinners, people that weren't apparently right, often came to listen to Jesus. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious laws is the other thing that we need to keep in context. So often the Christian community would look at that and say, the Pharisees and teachers of religious law are me and the leaders. The reality is this, anyone outside the church that's not a Christian or even those people outside the church that are just sitting on the fence of, of whether they like the church or Christianity or not, deem the church Pharisees and teachers of religious law. Perhaps a more modern translation could be this, hypocrites and just religious people. And that's how the community see us a lot of time, hypocrites and religious people. Why? We'll get to it. So this made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? So he's got 99 now. One of them's lost. Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for that one that is lost until he finds it? So 99 are lost. And so he decides to do something. He decides to set out to go to look for it, to search for it, to discover it. Keep going. Verse 5. And when he has found it, so he set out, he's looked for it, he's searched for it. Now he has found it. 
He will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. You know what we normally do when we search out someone? We normally come back to our friends and neighbors and highlight everything that was wrong. We don't do this with our friends, of course. But so often when we discover a person, we end up at some point highlighting everything that's wrong to our friends and neighbors. But I like it, and Jesus is going to continue on in, in, these, in these succession of stories, and this is going to come up over and over again, where they come, and he, they, he's found something. He's found this sheep, and he's presenting it to everyone, saying, look what I found. Look what I have discovered. Something was lost, and now I've discovered something. And it says from verse 7, In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Or suppose a woman, this is the next story, has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? I find this ridiculous. Because if I have a jar full of $2 coins and I lose one, I'm not going to burn oil and waste time stripping the house and sweeping for it to find it. But yet this person does just that in this parable, in this story, that she disperses everything until she finds it, as far as pushes all furniture aside and sweeps meticulously until she finds something that was lost. And when she finds it, she will call her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I have found something. Something was lost and now she's gone on this process of discovering it again. It's going to make more sense as we go. It's okay. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God, angels, when even one sinner repents. Sinner, like just person that does bad things at times. That's me. That's you. I look at people, obviously. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. Most of us will all be familiar with this. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So he's asking for his inheritance to be cashed in. I want to leave my inheritance. I want to take it now. So when you die, I don't get it. I want it now. I want everything right now. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. So this means this son, the youngest son, no longer has an inheritance. It's in his hands. So he doesn't get anything when dad dies. Continue on. In a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. Wild living... Go back to the start. Tax collectors are notorious sinners. That's what he's illustrating. That's what he's highlighting. That's what he's pointing out. When we read a bit further on, it'll highlight what that wild living is. But he is living, apparently, the good life. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve as far as he was hungry. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The, the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding, the pigs, looked good to him. I feed pigs at my father's place and nothing I feed them looks very good. So this guy must have been starving. Um, but no one gave him anything. And when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. And I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as your hired servant. So what he's highlighting here is he is that person that struggles with a self-perception of who he is, of what he is. I have sinned. I'm a bad person. I am no longer worthy. Take me on as your hired servant. He's saying, I don't even want to be your son anymore because I don't deserve it. I just want to be a slave to you. That's all because at least I get looked after and fed. He's that person that doesn't see any good in himself based on his notorious apparent sin. 
Everything that he's done is bad. His self-perception is low of himself. Some of us are like that. Continue on. Verse 20. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, I don't know how far off this was. It might have been a mile, might have been two miles. Maybe he was short-sighted and it was two meters. I don't know. Um, That was a joke, by the way. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. I like this, that dad is watching. He's watching, he's waiting, he's looking for him. And then these parts, I love it, filled with something, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son. So he sees him a long way off and then he gets filled with something. He's filled with love and compassion and he ran to his son. He embraced him and kissed him. I love it. He's looking, he's standing, he's searching, he's wanting to discover something. And he's filled with something, he's filled with love and compassion. But generally, when I do that, when I look at the lifestyle someone's leading, he's not unaware of what his son's doing, as we'll read on in a little bit. He's not unaware of what's happening. He's got his son's got actions that would deem him as a tax collector, a petty thief, a notorious sinner. So often when I see that, I for one don't run towards that person. And so often, even when I don't run, I'm definitely not filled with love and compassion. I'm filled with frustration. I'm filled with frustration because I want to see their lives better. I want to see their lives built. I want to see their lives grow. I want to see their lives developed. I want to see them in a deeper relationship with Jesus. I get frustrated if I'm very transparent. I imagine we all do something similar where there's that person that just keeps hurting us, hurting us, or we know that their actions are leading to destruction. We end up, what? We get frustrated with them. We see them coming from a distant off and we don't run. Sometimes we start running the other way perhaps, but we at least remain stationary and we're not filled with anything but frustration. Definitely not love and compassion. And I love that he runs and he embraces him and kisses him. And this doesn't have to be in in a romantic sense or even in a literal sense, but he was two things. He was warm and he showed affection. I think the best thing that we can do with people, with ourselves, with people outside the church, that maybe they fall into that tax collector and notorious sinner, whether they're in the church or outside the church, is we're warm to them. How we interact with them, how we speak to them. We're warm towards them so that they don't feel pushed aside and that we show affection towards them. It doesn't have to be a romantic or a sloppy affection, but we show them that we honestly care for them. He said to his, verse 21, his his son said to him, Father, I have sinned. Again, he's admitting his guilt. He's saying, I am not worthy of anything. I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Next slide. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with it. I like that thought that this calf's been getting fattened the whole time that he's been away. Like the, the calf that we have been fattening. I like, and it doesn't read it in here, but I can't help it. Every time I read that to reflect and think, I think dad's been fattening that calf the whole time the son's been away because he's been anticipating this moment, this very moment. And so he says, kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and now he's returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. I love this process of discovery. So let the party begin. We read on. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field working. He's a good person. He's a good person. He's a good Christian. He's a good 
son. He's a good contributor to society. He's good. He's just, he's a hard, honest working man. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We just celebrate him because of his return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. He was not happy. He was frustrated. Why was he frustrated? It says, his father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me. Remember, he's a good son. He's a good Christian. He's a good contributor to society, to his family. He's a good person. And all the time you never even gave me a goat to feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, that's the wild living that he was doing. He was drinking, he was partying, he was doing drugs. He was sleeping around. He was having a good time. Squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son. So he's talking to the older son, not the younger son. Okay. Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me. Everything that I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother. I love it how he repeats this stuff. Was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he has found. I love it. I love this process of discovery that all these stories like highlight and talk about that there was a lost son. Before that, it was a lost coin. Before that, it was a, a lost sheep. And every person set out to want to discover something. They wanted to discover what had been lost. And I, I wonder if we're really honest, how many of us know people that have been lost or they are lost and that our process of discovery is focusing on everything that's wrong with them all the sin all the junk all the mess in their lives we are those hypocrites when we do that when we focus on that when that's all we look to discover and the truth is this love seeks to discover the person not the actions not what's happening on the outside of the individual but love seeks to discover the individual Why? Because love wants to discover what God has placed in there, not what is just happening, not what's just taking place at that current moment. Love wants to discover the individual. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. I know he's getting at a whole lot of stuff, but one of the things he's definitely getting at is having this conversation with the Pharisees and religious teachers of the law, talking about all these tax collectors or petty thieves and notorious sinners, and he's saying to them, something here needs to be discovered. Something here needs to be found. Perhaps you've been sitting here all your life, he's saying, and you never discovered what's sitting here. That's the whole purpose of all these parables, that you need to discover what's right in front of you. And I wonder, for us, what's right in front of us that we haven't discovered because we haven't decided to step out and search it out, to look for it, to discover it, that we only discover what's on the outside, not the inside. Next slide. I think this is the problem. We point our fingers from a distance at all that is wrong, but never get close enough to discover all the good that is buried in a person that has been lost. We point our fingers from a distance. You know, that, that boss, perhaps you're that boss, or perhaps you work for that boss, will stand in the distance and point his finger at, or her finger at everything that you do wrong, but never get close enough in relationship to see everything that you're doing right. Always stand from the, from the distance and point. I'm not meaning from a literal distance, but as far as a relational distance, it'll always be a relational 
distance. That's what, if you, when we read through the Gospels, that's what the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law would do. They'd stand at a distance and point. They'd stand at a distance and highlight everything that was going wrong. They'd never get close enough to discover there was something buried within them. In Genesis, in the narration, in the Christian narration of, of, of creation, God says this. He says, I, or let's, let us, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And so that's not our literal physical being as far as what I look like, but that's the character that I possess, what's buried within me as far as God's likeness, which is his character. And the, the truth is this, that humanity, humanity has been made in the likeness, in the image of God. But what happens is that humanity loses that. Humanity forgets that we've been created in that way. Humanity, I don't know when this happens, if this happens instantly at birth or it just it's a progression over time, but we start losing sight of that which God has placed in us. The truth is this, I believe that everyone has got good in them, regardless of how bad they are. I'm not trying to get or mean yin and yang or anything of the sort, but every person has been created in the image, in the likeness of God, and I believe it is our role as a church. It is our role as Christ followers to discover that and draw that out. That's what Jesus is highlighting. Some of you won't know this name, but most everyone will know the hymn. How many know the name John Newton? Yeah. How many of you know he penned Amazing Grace? Yeah. So we all know the song Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, I now... That's it. So what you may not be aware of is the, his story. So we, we know of this hymn, this famous hymn that he penned, that we all worship to still several hundred years later. But John Newton started out his life as a scallywag and progressed worse than a scallywag. So he started out just as a general scallywag and then just became just an absolutely wretched person. So he, he manned and he sailed on ships and he captained ships. He worked on ships and... The reality is this, during his time on the ships, no one ever liked him. His crew never liked him. When he was serving under his people, no one liked him. When he captained the ships, they despised him. Why? Because he was a mongrel. He was abusive. He was violent. He was an alcoholic. He was exceedingly verbally violent towards his crew. He, wasn't, he just wasn't a happy person. He wasn't a good person. And to put it again... His job was to travel slaves from one continent to another across the ocean. That was his job. That's what he was doing. And then at one night, he's reading and having some, he's reading through a book. I can't remember what the book is at the time, but he has an encounter basically with Jesus where he has the realization that life isn't just about me, but there's something more, there's something I'm missing, there's something that I need. And he has this encounter with Jesus. And, and then it's from then this amazing grace begins to be penned. And then for the, for, if we're to begin to really quickly fast forward over his life, he deliberately strives to make amends for his life as far as he tries to stop doing what he's doing. And it takes a long time before he stops becoming a, a slave trader. But at the end of his life, after he's penned this poem or he's penned this song, he ends up becoming an advocate with William Wilberforce to end or help abolish slavery. Like, so the end of his life, he looks really, really good. When we look back on it, I know most of us probably know the story. When we look back on it, we can see that this guy was a scallywag at some point, but he, there was something good in him. Why? Because Jesus discovered him. That night in the ship, it was 1700 and something, Jesus discovered him. 
Why? Because Jesus was focused on everything that was good in him. Most of us will be aware of um, Oscar Schindler. If you're not aware of Oscar Schindler, um, he's a character from Schindler's List. Did anyone know who I'm talking about? Okay, so for those of you that don't, really, really quick recap. Oscar Schindler is responsible for saving approximately 1,200 Jews from the gas chambers from the Nazis. And so we, specifically when we watch the story or perhaps read some of the books or like just hear the overview of the story, he sounds like a really, really good guy. He didn't start that way. Not at all. So Oscar Schindler was, again, he was an alcoholic, a very abusive alcoholic. He had multiple affairs. He cheated on his wife. It was nearly a daily occurrence that this would happen. He had no respect for her. He worked for the Nazis as a spy. He was a profiteer of war that deliberately set out to profit from war. And he was basically slave labor. That's the reason he had Jews. In fact, his reasoning for rescuing the Jews to start off with was this. If you see it, this is quote, Oscar Schindler, if you see a dog about to get run over by a car, you pull the dog out of the way. He equated Jews to dogs. He didn't start out as anything good, but after a period of time of having Jews work for pretty well nothing, he started noticing that these Jews were also husbands and wives. He started noticing that there were brothers and sisters, that there were mums and dads, that there were grandparents, that there were humans. And so then in this discovery that he's found out, he's like, I need to do something here. And so then he set out to rescue as many of them couldn't end up being that he rescued approximately 1,200 Jews. And the reality is I think God's placed, and I believe, I'm convicted of this, that God has placed something in everyone. Everyone, whether they realize it or not, that, that person that you, that you work with, that you exceedingly struggle with, that you always draw out everything that's bad, God's placed something in them. What is it? Like, as, as, a, as, as a husband or as a wife, God has placed something in your spouse. What is it? God's placed something in, in the church. Like if you're that person that always sees what's wrong with the church, What's God placed in there? What's God put in there? If that's you, that you cannot stand you. God's placed something in you. What is it? And the question perhaps that we could be asking is, who are the John Newtons in our lives that are waiting to be discovered? Who are the John Newtons in our lives that have got those hymns, that have got those songs, that have got those giftings, that have got something that are waiting to be discovered by us? I believe that they're around us everywhere. They're the person sitting next to you. They're the person in your seat, being you. Next slide. Our lives are filled with people. Is that correct? If it's not filled with people, you probably live under a rock. So you cannot escape people. Our lives are filled with people from all different walks of life who all have the image of God buried within them. Every human being has the image of God buried within them. Every single person has something given from God buried within them. It's just waiting to be discovered. My thought is this. I love the example that Jesus puts forward. He takes, he finds 12 people and he discovers what's buried within them. And what happens is that we see 11 of them be martyred for it. They tried to martyr the other one, but they couldn't. John, they, they just couldn't kill He took these people that were just solely self-focused, solely focused on themselves, and 
transformed their lives to such an extent that they only wanted to live for other people. They only wanted to live to see other people experience the power, the love, and transformational presence of Jesus. And all Jesus did with them was seek to draw out the image of God that was buried within them. No one else was seeing. That's the point of this story. No one else saw this image of God within these people. That's what Jesus is trying to highlight. The sheep, that's a person with the image of God buried within it. Go seek, discover it. That lost coin, that's the image of God buried within it. Go seek, discover it. That son carries the image of God. Go seek, discover it. Draw it out. I wonder if, if you're that boss that only ever draws out everything that's wrong with your staff. What would your workplace look like if you followed Jesus' example and sought to discover the image of God that is buried within them? How would it look as husbands and wives in our marriage? How would it look if we deliberately did that? What would that show to our children? What would that show to the people around us? If we're that, that individual that only focus on everything that's wrong with ourselves, how would it look? How would it transform our lives if we followed that example and sought deliberately to discover everything that God has placed within us. With, with all of this, it's a deliberate step. It's a deliberate action to step out, to seek, to discover, to pursue what God has placed in there that we need to do by ourselves and we need to do together as individuals. But I believe the true transformation takes place when we deliberately set out to seek, to find, to discover that which God has buried, God has hidden for us to discover. How about you stand up, please? Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for every single person here. I thank you for all of us. That all of us here, Jesus, have the image of you, Father, buried within our presence, Father, buried within our hearts, Jesus. I know some of us have discovered part of it, Father, but there's so much more of the journey yet to be discovered. And I pray for one that we're deliberate ourselves, Jesus, to want to discover that which you have buried within us. But I pray that we're deliberate with everyone we interact with, that we come across, that we are deliberate in wanting to seek and discover that which you have buried, that we can discover something that's been lost, but realistically at the same time has been hidden there the whole time, just waiting to be found, Father. And I pray that as we step out into that, God, I pray that we see transformation take place in our marriages. We see transformation take place in our friendships, Father. We take pl- see transformation take place in our areas of employment, in all the areas of our life as we seek to discover what you've planted there, what you've buried there, and that what you're wanting to see drawn out in our lives and in the lives of everyone around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Please subscribe to hear more sermons from Epicenter Church.